George R.R. Uh, R. Martin, who's the author of Game of Thrones, uh, some of you familiar with the books or with the, with the HBO television series, was interviewed by Rolling Stone magazine recently. And this is what he said in the interview. Should we forgive Michael Vick? Uh, you remember Michael Vick, NFL quarterback? He had a little trouble with dogs. Uh, I have friends who are dog lovers who will never forgive Michael Vick. Michael Vick has served years in prison. He's apologized. Has he apologized sufficiently? Woody Allen, is Woody Allen someone that we should laud or someone that we should despise? Our Roman Polanski, our Paula Dean. Our society is full of people who have fallen in one way or another. And what do we do with these people? How many good acts make up for a bad act? How many good acts make up for a bad act? If you're a Nazi war criminal and then spend the next 40 years doing good deeds and feeding the hungry, does that make up for being a concentration camp guard? I don't know the answer, but these are questions worth thinking about. I want there to be a possibility of redemption for us because we all do terrible things. We should be able to be forgiven because if there is no possibility of redemption, what's the answer then? Uh, speaking of Nazi war criminals, Albert Speer was one of Hitler's right-hand men. Uh, he was the only person in the, of the 24 who were tried in Nuremberg to actually confess and to admit his guilt. And he was being interviewed a few years ago uh, on Good Morning America, and the interviewer asked him, or said to him, you have said the guilt can never be forgiven or shouldn't be. Do you still feel that way? He replied, I served a sentence of 20 years, and I could say I'm a free man. My conscience has been cleared by serving the whole time as punishment, but I can't get rid of it. This new book is part of my atoning of clearing my conscience. And then the interviewer said to him, you really don't think you'll be able to clear it totally, do you? And he shook his head and said, I don't think it will be possible. Albert Speer wants redemption, but he doesn't see any way that that could ever be possible. Uh, George Martin knows that we all need redemption. He recognizes that. He wants there to be a possibility of redemption. He even thinks that we should be able to be forgiven. But he can't figure out how that could possibly be brought about. He doesn't know how we could ever do enough or know that we've done enough to pay for our sins, to make atonement. And, and so what I want to do this morning is I want to agree with George Martin in this, that we all need redemption because we all do terrible things. And then I want us to see that redemption actually is available to us in Jesus Christ. So let's read, let's look at the text. Uh, I'm actually going to start here in verse 7. So it's the fifth line down here um, in your text at the end of the line. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ 
as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, um, as we look into this idea of redemption this morning, I pray that you would speak through me, speak over and above me and even against me if necessary. But Father, speak this morning and let us see uh, what is ours and what is available to us in Jesus Christ. We ask in his name. Amen. I picked that little section out. We've been for the last three weeks in this big section of Ephesians here. Uh, verses 3 through 14, we noticed last week, are actually one sentence in the Greek. Um, it's Paul just getting really excited about what Christians have because they're united by faith to Jesus Christ. And so it's just kind of him. It feels like he's just kind of running off at the mouth for a while. But, but he's really excited. And one of the things he's really excited about is redemption. And so what we're going to do is we're going to define redemption. We're going to talk about our need for redemption. And then we're going to show where we find redemption. We're going to define it, talk about our need, and then show where we find it. Let's define it first. If you were to Google the phrase measure of redemption, remember, ever hear this phrase, measure of redemption, as I did this week, you would get 30 million results in 0.33 seconds. So how's your internet? Mine's, mine's doing good. Um, and I didn't have time. I didn't have time to read through all 30 million. I'm sorry. Um, but on the first page, at least, every one of them was a reference to sports. All right. Every one of them was a phrase used in reference to sports. Now let me, I, I want to read some. And so you can see, see how this phrase is used in, in, in our culture. Uh, Patrick Robinson, cornerback for the New Orleans Saints, and, and it says he got a measure of redemption when he intercepted a pass after losing his starting job. And he came into the game, intercepted a pass, got a measure of redemption. Here's another one. World Cup 2014 for Brazil, battle with Netherlands offers small measure of redemption. Andre Walker in the USC offensive line get measure of redemption. Auburn Tigers will look for a measure of redemption the next time they play Mississippi State. Oh, I just made that one up. Uh, <laughs> then finally, there's one, there's one about uh, boys basketball. Um, even though it was a game they, were, they weren't expected to be on, it says this one school got a measure of redemption because they were supposed to go all the way to the final but they wound up winning the semi, the, the consolation game, and so they got a measure of redemption. And I was thinking about the, the, all these articles and how they're viewing redemption, and I think they're using it something like this. We lost to our rival, but now we came back the next year and we won, and so we got a measure of redemption. Or we, we, we lost the game we shouldn't have. We didn't go as far in the playoffs as we wanted to. But then we came back and we won, and so we got a measure of redemption. We, we messed something up. It's kind of the gist of it. And then we came back and we made up for it later by accomplishing something. And so we, through our efforts, got a measure of redemption. And depending on you know, how big the win was or how big the loss was before, you, you either have a small sliver of redemption or a measure of redemption, or you're fully redeemed, is the way that the phrase is used. But in every one of those, 
we fail and then we do something to make up for our failure. We go from being a loser to being a winner. We redeem ourselves. We accomplish our redemption. All right, now hang on with that one for a minute. Let's talk about how the Bible uses the word. The Greek word for redemption comes from a word that means a ransom uh, or the price of release. It was almost a, a technical term for the release of a slave. If you were a slave, a price had to be paid to redeem you, to release you from slavery. So to be redeemed in the Bible is to be set free, to be released, to set, be set free from slavery through the payment of a price. All right, what's the big, we'll be interactive for a second, what's the big redemption event in the Old Testament? Everybody's scared. The, the Exodus, where, where, the, where the Israelites are redeemed from slavery in Egypt. They're, they're, they're released from slavery. In the New Testament, Jesus pays the necessary price to free us from our bondage to sin and its consequences. So Jesus is the redeemer. Jesus is the one who pays a price to redeem us. Jesus is the one who brings about our redemption. Now let's, all right, let's, let's contrast the common usage and the Bible usage. The way we use the word today, at least in the sports section, is to somehow, it, it's somehow us making up for our past failing. We did something bad in the past, we're making up for it by doing something good in the future. We do the redeeming ourselves. In the Bible, Jesus pays a price. Jesus pays a price to free us from our bondage to sin and its consequences. So in the Bible, we do something bad, but Jesus does something to free us. You see the difference? Jesus does, in, in our terminology, we do something to make up for our failings, and we call that redemption. In the Bible, Jesus does something. To make up for our failings. And that's how redemption is brought about. Why do we need redemption? Why do we need redemption? Uh, there's a book called Redemption, appropriately, uh, by a guy named Mike Wilkerson. And in this book, he tells a story of a, a girl named Christine. He said that Christine lived in seven states by the time she was in junior high school. She grew up in a home where her parents were hardly ever home, and when they were home, uh, her mom was erratic. She was depressed frequently. Uh, one time, one of her brothers jammed an antique dresser drawer, and she yelled at him and said, if you do that again, I'm going to send you to the orphanage. So this is not a, not a very stable home environment. Uh, Christine's father, fathers and brothers exposed her to violent pornography by the time she was seven years old. Uh, when she was 10, she found her brother's stash of weed. By the time she was 12, she had developed a drug habit and started cutting herself. When she was 15, she was clinically depressed and left home. At 16, she was homeless. She fell victim to a sexual predator and eventually turned to prostitution just to make ends meet. 
Wilkerson makes the point in the book that Christine was in the place that she was in for two reasons. Both because of the way she had been abused, the way she had been sinned against, and also because of the way she had responded sinfully herself. And so both of these themes of abuse and addiction were woven into her life. Both of them trapped her. She was trapped by the way she had been sinned against. She was trapped by the way she herself had sinned. And what she needed was redemption. She needed someone to to set her free. She needed rescue. Now, I hope no one here has a, a story exactly like that. I mean, that's certainly possible. But I imagine that some of us at least have some of those elements in our life of abuse or addiction. And even if there's nothing in that you can relate to, and that just feels like this kind of over-the-top the dramatic story, if the Bible is true, and, and I believe it is true, if the Bible is true, this is a broken world, and every one of us have sinned, and we have been sinned against. We've, we've experienced some sort of of trouble in this world from the people of Israel and slavery in Egypt to a child silently suffering abuse to the man or a woman trapped in addiction uh, to pornography to the self-righteous religious person who pats themselves on the back and says at least I'm better than everybody else the Bible says that we are all trapped by sin by our own sin and by the ways that we've been sinned Against. If you go and read the, the parable of the, the prodigal son, you know, there's two brothers in that parable. The, old, the younger brother leaves home. The older brother stays at home and does his duty. But both of them need redemption. Kind of the guy we think of the characteristically bad guy and the guy we think of the characteristically good guy. They're both trapped by their own sin in different ways and they're both in need of redemption. So where do we find redemption then? If everything about our experience and everything about Scripture shows us that we actually need redemption, where do we find redemption then? Uh, some of us are like the, the, the Pharisees in the Bible, or we're like the older brother in that parable. Um, some of us, uh, even though we don't see our need for redemption, we do what the Pharisees were doing. Uh, we do what many church-going people in the South actually are doing in that we engage in a sort of self-redemption. And this is what I mean by that. We, we view ourselves as pretty good people. We, we feel like we have nice, successful, upstanding lives. We aren't those bad people. We try to follow Jesus' example, and we think God's just going to accept us in the end. So in effect, think about what we're doing. We're saying... Well, my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. Or the good deeds I do now are making up for the sins I committed earlier in my life. And so we're not thinking about that in terms of redemption, but that's what we're saying. We're saying my good deeds redeem my bad deeds. And so I'm going to be okay. I'm my own redeemer, in effect. Others of us realize our sin and our brokenness, but we we can't let go of the things that are actually hurting us. 
we can't let go of the, the people that are actually hurting us, even though they're hurting us. We can't let go of them because we continue to think that they're the way out, that they're the way to escape the pain. So we keep turning to alcohol to escape, even though it's hurting us. We keep turning to pornography to escape from the pain and the insecurity, even though it's actually hurting us and trapping us. Or we follow the, the route of Christine, and I want to weave her story through this morning. Uh, while she was there on the streets, she found a boyfriend. But after a while, he began to abuse her. Uh, physically, emotionally, verbally. And Wilkerson writes, but she tolerated it all because he was also her savior. She tolerated it all because he was also her savior. She got pregnant. She had an abortion. Her parents invited her to move back in with them. And she thought, you know what, I need to do this. I'm going to move in. This is my chance to get clean and get my life together. But she laid a condition down on her parents. She said, look, I'll move back in if you let my boyfriend move back in too. And so the boyfriend moved back in with her. And the cycle of abuse from her boyfriend continued. And the drug addiction continued because she she couldn't leave this person who was hurting her behind because even though he was hurting her, he was also functioning in some ways as a savior, as a redeemer in her life. Uh, others, I was just to use the illustration from a couple of weeks ago again, we're like Rocky. We're just trying to prove that we're not a bum, right? Uh, we're like the sports team that's failed, and through our own efforts, we're going to make up for what we've done in the past. And we're going to gain a small measure of redemption or at least salvage something of our lives through our own efforts. The Apostle Paul in this passage points us in a very different direction. He says, look what he says in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. In him. The, the redemption we need is actually found in Jesus Christ. And that redemption... He goes on to say, um, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. That that redemption actually involves the forgiveness of our sins, and it comes about, it's purchased for us by Jesus giving his very life for us through his blood. Remember what we said earlier, redemption involves paying a price. Um, let me illustrate it this way. If you have your car towed, right, and you're parked in the wrong place, and the city comes along and, and, and tows your car, um, it's generally towed to what I've always called an impound lot, right? Your car is, is impounded, and you have to go and pay and get your car out. Some places call that place where you go to pay the redemption center, and they call the fee that you pay that you have to redeem your car. And so you go and you pay the price to get your car out of prison, as it were. What the Bible is saying is that you're the car. What the Bible is saying is that, is that, I, is that I'm the car. We've been taken to the impound lot. We're in prison because of our sin and because of the ways we've been sinned against. And the only way we can get out is if we're redeemed. If someone pays our debt. Well, what's the debt that's owed? What does it take to get me out? What's the price that must be paid? 
If God's justice is to be satisfied, Galatians 3 puts it this way, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. In his death on the cross, Jesus paid what I owed. He gave his life for my life so that we could be freed from the impound lot of sin, so that we can be freed from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, and one day fully freed even from the effects of sin. What the Bible is saying to Nazi war criminals and to George R.R. R. Martin and to Christine and to you and to me is that redemption is available. Redemption is possible. But it doesn't come through our efforts. It doesn't come through our efforts. It comes from outside of us. It comes from one who redeems us, who, who dies to pay the price to set us free from our bondage, from our imprisonment to sin. We'll pick up Christine's story again. Workerson writes, Christine was consumed by feelings of worthlessness after so much neglect and abuse. She had been dogged by depression since childhood, and her savior boyfriend had now betrayed her and joined in her abuse under her father's roof, no less. All of this pain was compounded by the guilt from her sin. Drugs, prostitution, theft, manipulation, as well as from her bitterness, self-pity, and wallowing. She was a confused mess of a sufferer and sinner, and the pain of it was all simply more than she could absorb. She tried to boost her self-esteem, to love herself more, to forgive herself. She sometimes blamed others for her misery, but the pressure continued to build. In fact, the self-absorption inherent in these attempts at self-rescue only made things worse. One more word of rejection from her mother or her abusive boyfriend would stretch her to the point of bursting. Cutting was the only release she knew, so she cut herself deeper and deeper, trying to bleed out all that pain. Yet her sin-stained blood could never atone, could never soothe her guilty conscience, could never satisfy the wrath of a holy God, could never make a pure plea for God's rescue. One New Year's Eve, Christine's church-going aunt invited her to a special church service, and she reluctantly agreed to go. She pretended not to be strung out that night, but in truth, she'd made sure to load up on dope before meeting up with her aunt. At the small church, the pastor asked the congregation if anyone new had come that evening. Christine's aunt stood to announce that she was thankful Christine had joined her. To Christine's surprise, the pastor asked her to stand as well. Then he asked her in front of everyone, do you believe that Jesus is your Savior? I was thinking about trying that, maybe. <laughs> I'm not going to do that to you. That would be an interesting church to go. Anyway, uh, Christine replied, that would be nice, but no, I can't even conceive of it. The pastor challenged her once more, you know, the mystery of what God has done for you in Jesus is inconceivable. Can you accept that you won't be able to wrap your mind around it? With those words in that very moment, right in the midst of her drug high, something changed for Christine. 
For the first time, she saw Jesus in a new light. She left that night still affected by the drugs, but carrying a Bible in her hand. At home, she threw herself under her bed and wept, clutching her Bible. She faced withdrawal from the drugs, clinging only to God's word. God forgave Christine at her worst. That was only the beginning for Christine. She still suffered greatly as before. There were still dark nights when she longed to be loved and was lonely. There were still hurtful words that stabbed her heart where so many wounds had been inflicted by abuse and rejection. In the past, she would cut herself for relief during those times. But what about now, when she'd come to know the rescuing and all-forgiving love of God, knowing that Jesus had absorbed immense pain, including the pain of her sin, she could rely on him to carry her ongoing pain with her. It was not through hollow affirmations of self-love. She now knew the immeasurably rich love of God. And it was not by bleeding out her guilt and shame, for she had entrusted her heart to the healer. At the heart of what Paul is so excited about in these early verses is that we don't have to redeem ourselves from our sin and sorrow. That we don't have to, to, to pay the price for our own redemption. That we don't have to self-rescue ourselves. That we don't have to make up for our bad deeds with an abundance of good deeds. In fact, we not only do we not have to do that, we can't do that. But there is one who can. He redeemed Christine. He redeemed the Apostle Paul. And he can redeem you and your life and your story as well if you'll turn from your efforts at self-redemption and cast yourself on the arms of the Redeemer. Uh, let me close with this. I read a, a blog that was written recently by a, by a mom, and it was written about mom's blogs. This is evidently a, a little subgenre of blog, with these blogging, blogging mothers. Uh, and, and evidently there's been a rash of Christian mothers writing to, to sort of rightly reject sort of this... Um, What's the right way to call it? Like Proverbs 31, mom on steroids that, that so many women think they have to be. Like I can never be this woman. And so they're kind of, they're, they're railing against the machine. And so what, they, what they're doing instead is sort of embracing the mess. Like, yeah, I did feed my kids Fruity Pebbles for the last month, but that's okay. Sort of like, it's okay. And, and nobody can walk in my house, but that's okay because it's, it's lived in. And so you kind of move from, I've got to have Martha Stewart to decorate my house, to, I don't care what my house looks like anymore. It, it doesn't matter. It's okay. And, and <clears throat> the lady writing this is kind of talking about that, that, that dichotomy on how, on the one hand, you're like trying to live up to something, and on the other hand, you're just like, well, I'm not going to live up to anything. Uh, and she, she closed the article by saying this, I wonder what kind of damage we inflict on ourselves when our story ends with sin and mess. What happens when we end on our redemption? What happens if when I go to bed, I neither embrace my failures or hang my head in shame over my failures? Like I'm not beating myself up because the house is not perfect or I'm not just kind of going, oh, I don't care. What if I go to, to neither of those extremes about myself, but instead I embrace my redemption in Christ? 
and our embrace and our redeemer. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, um, we thank you that you have sent your son to redeem us and to rescue us from our sin and sorrow, to rescue us both from our addiction and the ways we've been abused. Father, we do, uh, we see so many ways we try to function as our own redeemers. Would you help us to give up on that and entrust ourselves to Jesus and Jesus alone? We pray it in his name. Amen.